Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, most of which are heard on Upfront and the Talkies, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guests are Liesl Tommy, director, and Ashley Jordan, one of the performers in Denai Guerrero's Tony-nominated play Eclipsed, now at the current theater in San Francisco through March 19th. Liesl Tommy, born in apartheid South Africa in a township near Cape Town, is today an award-winning director, recently the Associate Artistic Director at Berkeley Rep. She directed the acclaimed production of Party People about the history of the Black Panther Party. Aisha Jordan served as understudy to Tony-nominated Lupita Nyong'o in the key role of the unnamed girl in the Broadway production of Eclipsed, and she takes on the role here in San Francisco. Eclipsed is set during the Second Liberian Civil War and concerns the plight of four women kidnapped and forcibly married to a commander of the rebel army. Eclipsed received six Tony Award nominations for its Broadway production, including one for Liesl Tommy, who was the first woman of color ever nominated for the Tony for Best Director. Liesl Tommy, what do you see as the primary themes, what you're trying to accomplish as a director? The thing that I think is the most important part of Eclipse is that we humanize people that are often overlooked, that we deny rights about these women with such specificity and passion and humor and love that, and I said this to the girls a lot, to the women in the show a lot, you know, we women in Africa are (laughs) just that. We're just a, you know, a kind of anonymous type Usually, the image brings to mind, you know, a a, a half-naked person in rags on a newspaper cover in some kind of, you know, war-torn situation, and we just turn the page. People just turn the page. It's too upsetting. It's just like they can't keep track of it. (laughs) You know, there are people who said to me, you know, who've asked me questions about genocide in Rwanda, thinking it's like the same thing, and the genocide happened, you know, over a decade ago. So there's this perception that all of the struggles on the continent of Africa are the same. It's just one great big country and one, you know. So what's important to me and what I think is so beautifully rendered in this show is the the humanity of these people and that no matter who you are, where you are from, what part of America you're coming from, what your economic place is, you can watch this show and you can identify deeply with any number of these women because what the the play, the question the play is, is proposing is who would you be? If you suddenly found your life overturned and you were in the middle of a war, you would be one of these women, and which one would it be? What's interesting to me is that as we proceed with the Trump world, these are questions that we all have to ask in a way that we've never had to ask before. That is 100% correct. The play, strangely, in 2017 is more relevant than it ever was. How did you come on to Eclipsed? Because you were there from the very, very beginning. I was. I think it was eight, seven or eight years now. I got sent a draft, a very early draft, maybe the first draft of the play, to do a workshop of it, the McCarter Theater in New Jersey. 
Is this before you were Berkeley Rep? Oh, yes. Yeah, many years before. I was you know, quite an, a young director at the time. And I read about five pages of the script, and I called my agent, and I said, sign me up. Because within those five pages, I saw all of the things that Denai Greer, the playwright, was trying to do. And there were some incredibly fresh ideas. She was pushing form. She was really doing something different. And I thought, regardless of how this play ends, what the state of the draft is, this is a mind that I want to be collaborating with. And that was the beginning of it. And um, we worked together on it, the world premiere in D.C. at Woolly Mammoth, and then at Yale Rep, then at the Public Theater, and then Broadway, and now here at the Curran. Did this all start before you even knew who she was? I mean, had she become a well-known actress at the time? I knew her when she was right out of, out of grad school for acting. She wrote a two-person play with a friend of hers, Nicole Salter, called In the Continuum, and it's about two women dealing with, with HIV and AIDS. One woman in Africa, one woman in North America, and just the parallels and the differences. And they wrote it for themselves for their grad school thesis. And that play did very well and traveled, and I knew them both because of that play. So that was well before any of her film or television credits, um, when she was just a theater person. You must have been shocked when she suddenly became a star. <laughs> well, no, there are those people that you just know are destined for a larger existence. She just has that light. Aisha Jordan, how did you become involved in Eclipse? In 2009, I auditioned for the production at Woolly Mammoth. They workshopped it at the McCarter, but I was not involved in that. But I did do the DC production. So that was my first go at it. You're primarily an artist yourself. You do mm -hmm. video material. Has the acting bug been there all along too? Yes. I studied theater in college, and I've been doing that since I graduated. Basically, the video actually came later video and creating my own works. You started and you auditioned at Woolly Mammoth. So how did you get the role as the understudy on Broadway? Liesl wanted someone who probably knew the role already since they had to move quickly from the public onto Broadway. And so she'd reached out to me and asked if I was interested. And I was like, yes. <laughs> So how did the rehearsals go? Because that's like the lead role. Well, it's an ensemble piece, but I know that the girl is the center sort of character of the story. In the rehearsals, I mean, we are working through the script and on our feet. Because the process for Broadway was so fast, basically the ladies who were the principals, they just hopped right in it, you know, into the blocking, into the work. And for us who were the understudies and standbys, we were just there to watch and, you know, take notes. And then when it was time for us to work on our own or like outside, you know, we would do that. Well, for an understudy on Broadway, what exactly does that entail? I mean, do you sit there and watch Lupita Nyong'o do her thing and take notes on her to duplicate or how does that work? Well, fortunately for, for me as an actor, I don't have to try to duplicate everything she did. Um, there were a lot of things that I did in a similar fashion, sort of in my own way, but that yeah. felt similar for the other actors so that they could stay in their rhythms and it wouldn't throw, throw the show off for them. Um, so we would watch. We wouldn't watch every night. On average, I think 
once the show was up and running, I'd watch maybe, you know, once or twice a week. Um, during the beginning, though, we were watching because we wanted to make sure that, you know, we had the blocking down and certain beats that we really needed to hit were correct. Toward the end, there's a monologue that you have to carry off, which is the central monologue. How do you prepare for that kind of monologue? That monologue is so challenging because you have to really allow yourself to just open up and be vulnerable and sort of just let it all hang. I actually spoke with Danai about that monologue because I performed it a few times, but we wanted to, I don't want to say tighten it up, but we wanted to make it even more powerful and, and really make the storytelling clear. So I sat with her and she shared with me, she actually met with a woman who watched her daughter basically go through some of what I spoke about in the monologue. And for me, knowing that this was something that actually happened to someone really connected me to the story in a different way. And then just kind of going through the monologue beat by beat and breaking down the story and like how to approach each moment. When you're doing that in the middle of it, I guess the memorization is such that you're not going to lose yourself. Mm -hmm. Do you have cues from the other actors? No. Sorry, there's one other actress with me on stage. Yeah, the character playing number two slash Maima. She's there and she's a fighter and I'm sharing this with her. I'm just trying to get through the story because in hopes that she and I can connect because I need someone <laughs> to sort of lean on to and that character is there for is there for but I don't want to tell the story. But. <laughs> <laughs> right. Lisa Tommy, in an interview, you talked about how you like to work on multiple projects mm -hmm. and compartmentalize. Is there seepage? As we're talking this show, I just closed, we overlapped by a couple of weeks, I just closed a new musical by John Kander in New mm -hmm. York, and that is about a boy who was held in a basement for a year and comes back into his Midwestern, very white, very Christian life. And it's really a beautiful musical about trauma and PTSD. And that certainly overlaps with Eclipsed. On the one hand, I mean, Eclipsed has much more humor and is, has a really vibrant life force at the core of it. And there's a, a lot more uh, comedy in Eclipsed. And then the next show that I'm doing is a production of Macbeth, which is a very political, uh, has a very political take, and it takes place in North Africa is where I'm placing it. So this seepage, one could say those are three extremely different projects, but the common denominator is, I guess, my aesthetic. Kid Victory, which is the Candor musical, is about someone who's been... Kidnapped and held against his will. To some degree, so is Eclipse. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Growing up in South Africa under apartheid in, you know, was a huge influencer on my life and on my art. And I think people would think it's, it's politics, but for me, it's really about freedom. Every single play ends up being about a person or person's deep core pursuit of freedom. Because once you've lived in a society where structurally it's part of the constitution for people to not be free, I don't know if in one lifetime you ever recover from that. And I feel like that's a big part of my work is processing that. Well, do you think we're coming full circle to lack of freedom here right now? Yes, because what you have right now, and you've had this for decades, people don't really want to co confront it, is you have different kinds of people living different kinds of existences because of inequities in terms of the legal system. 
Mandela said that there is no such thing as partial freedom. If your neighbor is not free, then you are not free. And I think that's something that the you know everybody in America is dealing with today. Well, it seems that those of us who were fortunate to be born white in this country are seeing what it's like a little bit more to have been born mm-hmm. black in South Africa. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I think that's true. And the and I you know the the thing that I'm always interested in the thing that deny speak so beautifully about an eclipsed and that these incredible actresses are embodying every day is the, no matter who you are, because every single one of them kind of portray a very different woman. It's really about every kind of woman, every kind of mother, daughter, sister, child, friend. No matter who you are, once tyranny touches you, that becomes your common denominator. Let's go back a little bit to the earlier productions over the various productions, what changed in Eclipse? That's a really good question. The first three, I would say, was really just about getting the script into a really nice, tight, cohesive sto- piece of storytelling with, with you know great arcs for the story as well as for the individual characters. But once we got to the public, there really wasn't that much left to do because once we were done at Yale, it was in really strong shape. But what we ended up doing was just working on a couple of scenes to clarify. Years had gone by, five or six years had gone by, and there were just you know very small things that you just wanted to kind of clarify for the 2016 audience. And then once, once we moved to Broadway, we actually didn't do many changing in terms of the writing. It was really in terms of the tone, because with Broadway, it's not a downtown theater audience. So I just massaged some of the comedy a little bit more, and, and um, you know, you have a bigger space, you have 400, 500 more people. The kind of the highs and lows that are inherent in the piece, um, I kind of just teased out a little bit more. When you say that uh, massaged or teased out the humor, can you be specific? What exactly do you mean by that? One of the things that I've always been interested in is who my audience is. You know, when I did a production of Les Mis in Dallas, Texas, I thought a lot about who that audience was, and I, I kind of made the production with that audience in mind. And the same thing about this Macbeth that I'm going to do in Washington, D.C. It's going to be really speaking to that audience. They're informed about a certain kind of thing. So that's the conversation. The downtown audience, the public theater, that's one kind of audience. And then the the more democratic audience. At, it's an interesting thing to say because the tickets are so expensive on Broadway. But, you know, they are not people who see, you know, weirder, more political, more com- you know, um, challenging material regularly, like the downtown theater audience. So for me, it was just about making sure that those people who spent 150, you know, plus dollars got the story with as much clarity and as much joy as we possibly could tell it. Aisha Jordan, on that same question, for you as an actor, are you thinking in those terms at all, or are you just kind of letting her do all the work? I'm letting her do that. (laughs) For me as the actor, I just want to be as honest as I can in terms of how I'm portraying the role and bringing as much as I can of myself to that. So yeah, so I let Liesl take care of how she wants us as a whole to present it to the audience. And then me as a performer, I just really just try to take what's on paper and bring it to life and interpret it to the best of my abilities. Now, when you're doing your own work, are you paying attention to audience that way, do you think? 
Yes, yes and no. I have the things that I want to do as an artist that I'm like, okay, this is something that I'm just is is it has to go my way. <laughs> and then there are the things like I want to take the audience into account because I don't want to be a selfish artist. I want people to enjoy what they're right. seeing. So it's like, okay, is this just me being self-indulgent or am I creating something that I feel like people are going to enjoy or feel or be moved by or touched by? So in that way, I try to curate the way I <laughs> put things together. Lisa Tommy, for something like Party People for Berkeley Rep, you would have been very aware that you're dealing with Oakland and Berkeley then. Absolutely, 100%. We did first at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and then we brought it here. And I mean, the, the biggest thing that we had to do, contend with was our nerves, because, you know, this is the birthplace of the Panthers in, in so many ways. And here we were telling a story that was, there was a lot of unvarnished truth in it. We didn't, you know... Um, we spoke to a lot of people. The universes did an incredibly comprehensive, you know, uh, interview tour. There were people who were alive and not speaking to each other because of what had happened back then, and they were going to be in the audience together. So continuing to be rigorous about the storytelling, you know, and feeling our like our first loyalty was to the legacy rather than to individuals. When you're doing a program in Berkeley as opposed to, say, New York, are you ever scared about maybe pandering to a specific audience in terms of, like, getting them to applaud, even if you're kind of touchy about what you think would work? No, I don't think so. I don't think that works. When you have a really intelligent audience, you know, pandering is, that's a road to nowhere. You know, there's just no, there's no way that that is, it's not something I'm interested in at all. And I won't, I don't want you to confuse me like pulling out the humor with pandering to a Broadway audience. That's absolutely not what, what I was doing because as I was pulling out the humor, I was also pulling out the brutality. When I say I was, you know, interested in really delving into the highs and lows, you know, it's a bigger theater, it's a bigger audience, bigger ticket price. And so I can go further and the girls can go further. Well, what about bringing it to San Francisco? Are you are you thinking more, this is similar to Broadway or similar to yes, Berkeley? Yes, I am, because I feel that what we're doing is we're, we're bringing the Broadway production. What people are interested in seeing is that Broadway production that was nominated for X Many Tony Awards. That's one of the interesting things about, you know, as opposed to birthing something, rehearsing something at a, at a regional theater, putting something on tour and bringing it, you know, around the country. What you're giving people access to is what they couldn't, for the for the folks who cannot fly to New York and buy a Broadway ticket, you're giving them access. Which you wouldn't be getting because it's not the kind of show that's going to do your normal Correct. tour. This is also an unusual show in that virtually the entire staff of the show is are women. I think there's one exception to that. The cast, the author, and the director are all African-American women. Well... We or African. <laughs> yes. The Broadway production, I think every, almost everybody was African except for one person. woman was Haitian. For the tour, we, it's, everybody is African-American. And sorry, Ariola and um, Akuswa are African. One is Nigerian and one is from Ghana. Do they bring their own... Of course. Uh, so how does that work? How would that work if other people in the show who are African are seeing an American do Africa. You should talk to Aisha about that because I definitely feel like there may have been times when she and Jonice Abbott-Pratt felt picked on because I was so rigor, <laughs> been really rigorous with them about, you know, about the technical aspects of the performance. 
It's interesting. It's challenging in the way that being African-American, you know, our, it's a very specific culture. We grew up with very specific ways of, of like mannerisms, gestures, right. ways of talking, physicalities. And of course, African culture and the many, many African cultures that exist. And then being specific to the show Liberian is very different, you know, right. so it's for one, trying to adjust, but of course, if you have a lifetime of habits, <laughs> sometimes that's hard to break away from. And so, the gestures, mostly, I would say. The gestures, especially. And yeah. for me, I'm a very animated person in life. And so sometimes I have to sort of check myself. And Liesl's good at checking us and making <laughs> sure that we kind of put those away. What would be an example of, say, a gesture that you would use normally in your work that you can't use and have to replace? I mean, even just pointing. We were talking about this the other day. You know, I point a lot. I think Americans tend to point a lot. Some people find it very rude in other cultures. I think that's something that's, you know, we've had to pull back on in certain gestures. I think also... Even in joking, you know, certain posturings, you know, whether it's like neck movements or just ways that I move my arms. For me, I grew up with hip hop culture, so I also have certain ways that I like express myself that I have to really try to refrain from doing in the piece. And I think especially when we have moments where we're getting excited or even just having fun, you know, you want to kind of let things roll, but then right. you realize like, wait, no, I can't do that. I have to like rethink how I'm doing that. Well, what about the, the big monologue? Is, is that problematic there too? Uh, the big monologue, not as much. I think because that's such, it's, it's very emotional and it's very, um, because it's sort of painting a picture of something that, that happened. For me in that, I feel like I'm so busy concentrating on retelling this story, this incident that happened, that it's less about how I'm moving my body and more so about just about how I'm telling the story. So you're kind of just telling it and you're not worrying as much about the physicality. Yeah. You know, one thing I, I wanted to, to add to this conversation is we've seen a lot of completely inauthentic portrayals of ourselves in film in television right. all over. And the rigor of research is always shockingly lacking and one of the things that I you know I feel really strongly about when I because I, I, I have done quite a lot of, of shows that are about African people and that specificity is really really important because the respect for a culture the respect for a people the respect for a place has to be um, central to storytelling when you have decided to embody the lives of people from a different place. And so these kinds of details, and, and, and it not, it's not to say that people in Liberia don't point, but it's just there's a certain kind of way that our girls have been, you know, our American girls have been doing it that we just needed to really specify. It's always about being specific. Are you sure? Did you do research on Liberia? Oh, yes, yes. There's lots of reading, lots of videos, tons of videos, also to work on the dialect. We watched Pray the Devil Back to Hell, I would just kind of go on these YouTube searches and look for different videos of kids and like 
people who work with children in Liberia just to hear the accents and just see, you know, what these kids do during the day and, and how they carry themselves. We had a dialect coach in New York, and we have one here. Um, well, not in San Francisco, but that was working with us in New York. Beth McGuire was our dialect coach for the Broadway production. And Jane, uh, Jane, I can't remember how to say her last name. She was our dialect coach in New York. I've noticed in a lot of plays where they focus so much on the accent that it's almost hard to understand the actors. How do you balance that out for an American audience? It's a very good question because the Liberian accent is one of the, in my opinion, most unique English accents in the world because it's an incredibly fascinating hybrid of, you know, the American slaves, former slaves who colonized the, the country, frankly, and, you know, the original West African Liberian accent kind of merged into this amazing uh, consonant, less highly lyrical, with a, you know, a great deal of use of pitch, <laughs> kind of fascinating um, sound. And it is, it can be at times very challenging for a European or an American ear. There's a, there's a methodology to it because I've done a lot of accent plays as well. You know, you learn the accent perfectly. And then in the first scene, the first, you know, maybe two or three scenes, you loosen it so that the audience's ear can tune to the sounds. It's not a pure accent. It becomes a theatricalized version of the accent so that the audience can, can understand what they're hearing. And then you can creep in a, the more authentic version so that by the end, the audience can follow it. But I mean, listen, there's always going to be somebody who, to be brutally honest, Americans are not very good at understanding foreign sounds. A lot of them have not traveled. A lot of them do not watch television or films where they are forced to understand sounds that are not their own. You know, that's certainly a challenge. But if you, if you kind of give over to the storytelling and you are rigorous about the way that you're using the accent in the first few scenes so that they can, the audience can get on board with you, it should be ultimately satisfying. But, you know, there's nothing I can do about the odd person who's just like, I have no idea what they're saying. Listen, I mean, when, I, when we were on Broadway and we were kind of troubleshooting this, a lot of people who've done a lot of shows on Broadway said that, you know, when they do Martin McDonough plays, the feedback is constant. That Irish accent is too hard to understand. We cannot understand that Irish accent. Or when you do British plays where you have, you know, northern northern England accents or, or Cockney accents, you know, the Americans have a really hard time understanding these, these sounds. So you just have to come up with a game plan. Well, you also have to keep the speed down a little bit exactly. too. Speak slower than All you would that. normally speak. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's just simply a technical solution. How many of these kinds of issues come up that wind up just being technical solutions? Many. <laughs> Many, you know, you know, you just you just have to so for example, something that has I'm giving away stupid secrets. Um, so something that is a particularly kind of difficult um, to follow sentence. You slow it down, but you also make sure that the audience can see the mouths of the people. You stage it because there's just something about seeing mouths move. You light it so you get a little bit more light on that on that actor in that moment, just to help move the story in closer to the audience. These are these are such simple technical solutions, but they they work. For me, of course, this is a big deal because even if I'm from a distance, it helps to see. And if I'm in say a thrust where I'm on the side. I'm going to miss a lot yes. just simply because I'm not seeing their face. Correct. Yeah, purely technical. 
I mean, how do you feel about doing thrust versus proscenium? Oh, I mean, I love all of it. I love thrust. I love doing things in the round. It's all it's all thrilling. It's all, you know, has its particular um, challenges and joys. You know, I, I am a person who in general prefers more immersive styles. So proscenium is not always the most satisfying, but I always find a way to make it feel immediate. That's the thing for me. It's just about how to make a, make the, the theater feel immediate and not dusty. It, it's really about, you know, in our lives, there's so many, so many different ways to be entertained. And sometimes I feel like theater is, is the least thrilling. So I feel like it's my job and my collaborator's job to make a very very ironclad argument for a theater's relevance. Well, speaking speaking of something that happens in the theater and that can't happen live, I noticed in looking at material on Eclipsed that you have a fight director. Yes, indeed. Without giving too much away, what are we talking about here? Well, the fight director, Rick Sordelay, and his son, Christian Kelly Sordelay, these are gentlemen that I have worked with extensively. I have a really close relationship with them. We have an aesthetic that lines up, and we've done a lot of really thrilling work together. I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. They worked with me on Kid Victory. They worked with me on this. They'll work with me on Macbeth. And they worked with me on a show called Appropriate by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins that I premiered in New York a few years ago. And all of these shows have a lot of violence, a lot of brutality. And that's just something... I guess that I am also drawn to, you know, to realize stage combat, to realize violence on stage where obviously we're not beating each other up seven or eight times a week. (laughs) It is one of the most difficult art forms to conquer, I believe, stage combat. I've seen a lot of theater where you know, it's fairly indifferent. It's by the numbers. You know, there, it's just sort of like it's the primary thing seems to be be safety as opposed to truth telling. One of the things that father and son Sordelay have accomplished is a way of working with actors and with um, certainly with me as a, the director that gets to the center of the, the idea and breaks it down into a way that is executionable and shocking. Your next project, Aisha, this is a two-week run. And what have you got on tap after this? I currently am working on my own project, Shasta Goes Pop, and I'm trying to figure out how to get her everywhere. So we're working on videos for her and working on trying to book her in various cities and countries throughout the world. And Liesl, Tommy, you said that, um, I guess, Kid Victory, is that over now? It's still running. It's running until March 19th in New York City. And then after this, will be a production of Macbeth. And then I'll have two more shows, one at Steppenwolf, one at Williamstown, and then some film and television. 